Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Songcraft, please take a moment right now to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also hear streaming episodes on Spotify. To receive a bi-weekly email with new episode announcements, sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. You can also keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. To find out more about how you can help support our mission while getting access to bonus content, exclusive contests, and other extras, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. You're listening to Galileo. Written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Emily Saliers. Best known as one half of the legendary folk rock duo Indigo Girls, the Grammy Award winner will join us in a few moments to discuss her remarkable career. Part one. Well, before we jump in today, uh, we just want to thank everybody who has sent us um, demos that they've recorded at Pearl Snap Studios. Um, we mentioned that we're going to start sharing uh, some excerpts of uh, some of that stuff. But uh, we misplaced them. <laughs> I I put them in a folder somewhere around here. I'm in Manila. (laughs) No, we actually uh, had said we were going to start sharing those this week. We're just going to bump that uh, a couple weeks to the next episode. Um, And uh, we've got kind of a a lengthier interview this time around. So thanks for uh, bearing with us on that. And thanks for sending in the stuff. So we'll start sharing those uh, again next episode. Um, But before we jump in today, we do have a giveaway. Yes, we do. So we had Lang Martin uh, on the show a couple weeks ago. He has written a memoir called Permission to Fly, and um, we have a copy of this signed by Lang Martin himself. Is that right? Signed by Lang Martin, by his very legendary songwriting hand. Um, So, Paul, I've got uh, some names here that I wrote on these post-it notes. So in the interest of fairness, since I wrote them, All right. it would not be uh, good for me to be the one to pull one out. So if you want to reach over there and... All right. It looks like we've got Phil Toronto. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Toronto? 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 Well, Phil Phil T. Mr. Phil T. Hey. Mr. T. <laughs> Mr. T. We're giving it to Mr. T. Um, you guys are getting multiple celebrities on this episode. So, uh, Phil, congratulations. Thank you for uh, for submitting your name to the contest, and you'll be getting that book. Uh, I guess we got to get his address, yeah? Yeah, that will help. I don't think we can just write Phil T. on an envelope and send out the book. He might be famous in his town, though. I also so. can't fit the book in an envelope, so that whole premise is just falling apart. Phil, we so will Phil, uh, deliver that to your house. <laughs> we, we will contact you, get your address, and uh, get that book out to you. Thanks for, for entering the drawing, and congratulations. Part two. So, Paul, you and I um, are pretty much the same age, grew up uh, in the same place, had a similar uh, in- environment. You're a little older. Uh, slightly, and a little wiser, but, you know, who's keeping score? You're a little older. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, when you were growing up, to what degree did your parents kind of monitor your music that you were listening to? Um, I, you know, until they got bored with monitoring it. I mean, I, I, they, they monitored it probably, I, I would say, on a scale of one to ten, about a six. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're of the generation where all the parents got into the Tipper Gore uh, parents' yeah. music resource, whatever the thing was. And, you know, all music was going to turn us into Satanists. Yeah. And, you know, there's a whole sort of like music is destroying America's youth 
kind of uh, scare. Yeah, well, um, I, I certainly remember uh, being uh, forbidden to listen to Prince, and then uh, my mom came across the the jacket of George Michael's Faith huh. and read some of the lyrics of the I Want Your Sex uh, song, uh, yeah. and then uh, there were three versions of it actually on the record, Yeah, and I was forbidden to listen to him as well. Right, right. Well, I had it kind of hard when I was a kid because my dad was in the music industry, hmm. so he was more aware than the average parent yeah. of like the content of a lot of the cassette tapes that I had. So I think I uh, bought ACDC's Back in Black cassette maybe four times, and then it <laughs> continually got confiscated, and yeah. I would hide it in a new place, and it would get found again. Um, my dad would even go so far as to take tapes that I liked, and if they were like two objectionable songs, he would create me a new version of that tape and just remove those songs from it. That's and, actually pretty cool. <laughs> Let me listen to that. That's that's um, not bad. I remember the first Lenny Kravitz album, uh, Mr. Mr. Cab Driver. Yep. Uh, you know, at the very end of that song, he tells Mr. Cab Driver, you know, we're, we're F, stick it, F you yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but in my version, it, it faded out a few <laughs> moments for then. So I never knew that that Lenny dropped the F bomb. That song does fade, by the way. He just yeah, put the fade he in faded earlier. earlier. Yeah. yeah. So in a weird way, like, yeah, my dad was confiscating my music. He was also putting a lot of effort into it. Yeah. Um, and I think that my mom might have like felt a little jealousy that she was left out from, from all of this confiscation, oh. you know? So when I was in junior high school uh, and, and we were just starting, like CDs were kind of just starting to come in. Right. And I had a, a small handful of CDs and one of them was an Indigo Girls CD. And I had it sitting on my desk in my room and my mom came in and she goes, Oh, Indigo Girls. I was like, yeah. And she goes, I know what they sing about. Hmm. And I immediately felt like this sense of pity for my mom that she had <laughs> attempted to bluff like inappropriate content. And it was probably, so I said, Oh yeah, what do they sing about mom? And she said, I think, you know, <laughs> I said, yeah, I want, I want you to tell me about it. Tell me, tell me what they sing about. And she's like, well, probably things you shouldn't be listening to. I'm like, like things about the environment. <laughs> and I, I think she realized it was better to just like pull the plug before this went yeah. further. And she's like, well, and then, you know, she sort of left the room. So after we <laughs> interviewed Emily, uh, I called my mom and said, do you remember this happening? And she claims to have zero memory of yeah. it uh, whatsoever. To her, it never happened. But I always thought, man, of all the ones to bluff on that I actually totally. had plenty of stuff I shouldn't have been listening to of all the ones to bluff on. Is there any more kind of sort of like socially conscious yeah. and they said respite. <laughs> right. yeah. So, uh, well, so, I can tell you as a parent that you, you bluff every day. And so I can, th I, I see why that was totally unmemorable to her because <laughs> I walk into my child's room and tell her a blatant lie. Probably five times a day. Right, yeah. right. Well, that's good to know. And, and now it's uh, preserved so she can hear that one day. And, oh, uh, she knows. She already and, knows. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, Indigo <laughs> Girls were a pretty were a pretty big part of our, yeah. of our growing up years. And, and, and actually, I, I would look at them as formative uh, for me as, as a writer and even as a consumer of music. It sort of set, uh, set the tone for what I expected out yeah. of music. Because, you know, these lyrics, man, they are, there's a lot there. There's a lot of depth. There's a lot of, of great uh, storytelling, kind of uh, narrative detail, and, and uh, plus the harmonies, man. Yeah. 
Unbelievable. Yeah, Indigo Girls, uh, if, if, if you are listening to this podcast right now and you're not familiar with their music, do yourself a favor of, of checking out, uh, I would say, records like Rites of Passage and Nomads, Indians, and Saints. I mean, yeah. it's just such good stuff. Yeah, and I, I got to say my favorite part, uh, I, I had two favorite parts of this interview, uh, one that you guys are going to hear and one that you're, you're not going to hear. Um, but my favorite part that you won't hear is that when Emily called us, uh, we answered the phone and she said, oh, hi. Uh, this is Emily from Indigo Girls, which I'm like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like if she'd been like, hey, it's Emily Sailors. Uh, well, yeah. sorry, <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> which which says something about like they just seem like very down to earth yeah, and cool people. Humility. Like, you know, like, oh, I better identify like what institution I represent just totally. so there's no confusion, which I thought was actually very cool and charming. And then you responded um, with who gave you this number? <laughs> And then the the anyone who's been to an Indigo Girls show knows that they say thanks y'all you know like yeah. all the time yeah. which is which is like a huge part of their it's kind, kind of, of part of the thing yeah it's like their brand and so all I'll say is that when we were finishing the call that was the most satisfying moment totally. to, to hear that I was like we're in <laughs> well uh, let's take a listen part three. Singer-songwriter Emily Saliers is best known as one half of Indigo Girls, which NPR called one of the finest folk duos of all time. The Georgia-raised musical icon is the sole writer of some of the group's best-known titles, including Closer to Fine, Hammer and a Nail, Galileo, Least Complicated, Power of Two, Get Out the Map, and others. With 15 studio albums to their credit, Indigo Girls are Grammy Award winners and winners of the Pell Award for Lifetime Achievement in the Arts. They've earned seven gold, four platinum, and one double platinum award for album sales, and have collaborated with R.E.M., Joan Baez, Brandy Carlisle, Pink, and Rage Against the Machines' Tom Morello. In addition to her work with Indigo Girls, Sailors and her father, a retired theology professor, co-wrote the book A Song to Sing, A Life to Live, Reflections on Music as Spiritual Practice. In recent years, she released her debut solo album, Murmuration Nation, and has remained an impassioned activist and advocate for causes close to her heart. Emily, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, it's great to speak with you. Um, And I understand that you were born in Connecticut, but grew up in Georgia, where your father, Don, was a uh, theology professor at Emory University. And a few years back, uh, you and your dad wrote a book together called A Song to Sing, A Life to Live, Reflections on Music as Spiritual Practice. And I thought this is, you know, that would be a really great place to start our conversation before we dive into your career as a songwriter, because it establishes a bit about, obviously, the way you see the world of music. This is something that you have uh, have thought about. Um, tell us about the process of creating that book uh, with your dad and what you really wanted to um, communicate through that. Well, the genesis of it was that we were <clears throat> approached by a publisher. We'd written a little article together um, in a group of essays or articles, and so we were approached to write a book about our experience as musicians. And my dad, even though he's a theologian and an ordained minister, he cut his teeth on jazz and and probably would have been a, a performer, a pianist, performer if he hadn't been called um, to the church and to the work that he ended up doing as his vocation. And then, so we, and also my grandfather was a 
professional touring musician in the big band era. It was oh. kind of in our blood. Yeah. My mom also played piano. And so we, you know, Amy and I played at this place called Little Five Points Pub in the mid to sort of later 80s. And it was just sort of a motley crew of people. And for those of us, like, there were a lot of uh, lesbians who came to see us because there weren't, there just weren't a lot of models in the music industry of places where gay people, it's not like it is now where it's much more talked about and out in the open. And so, right. and there were people from different bands and stuff. And so when my dad and I started writing the book, we talked about how music can be sacred and um, uplifting of the spirit and bring community together in a so-called secular place like a bar, hmm. as well as in church with hmm. sacred music. So we just began exploring the crossovers between well, they call it uh, secular music, but we, we agree that there is no really no right. thing as secular music. Hmm. And that's how the the book started. And so we just had a bunch of conversations, and it got transcribed and edited and became that book. Wow. And, you know, speaking of your dad, I, I read in an interview that he gave you a chore in the yard as a kid that kind of helped set up your first record-buying experience. Um, I'm sure our listeners <laughs> would love to hear, what was that job and what was the record? The first album I ever bought was Jackson 5, I Want You Back, and it was $5, and I had no money. I was I was little. I think I was in maybe second or third grade. And so my dad created a job for me, and he said, I'll give you a penny for every dandelion you pick in the yard. Of course, <laughs> you know, there was no, like, essential need to rid right. the yard of dandelions, right. but, you know, he, I earned the money, and I ended up picking 500 dandelions, wow. much to his surprise. <laughs> and then they took me to the store, and I bought my Jackson 5 album, so it's... Uh, I'll never forget that. It was a very big deal to buy my first album. Oh, that's incredible. I, I remember as a kid buying dandelions for a nickel a piece, so I think you, you might have got just on that one. <laughs> oh, is that why? I don't remember you I, buy a dandelion. I, 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 that was just the going rate. <laughs> there was a kid with a dandelion stand in my neighborhood. <laughs> I was going to say, you should have blown them all to, to get all the seeds for like future work. You know? That's true. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wasn't as, you know, I wasn't an entrepreneur back then. I didn't think it was all I wanted was the music. Well, you bought a great record. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Um, well, it was in elementary school uh, where you first met Amy Ray, and then in, in high school when you first began performing together, and then in college at, at Emory when you settled on the name Indigo Girls. And, you know, that pretty well established you guys starting out as a uh, quote-unquote Georgia band. Um, and it seems like critics are kind of increasingly intrigued by this idea of a sense of place, you know, when we talk about mm -hmm. music. Um, mm -hmm. I'd love to know how that region and your association with Atlanta, Athens, you know, the state of Georgia, um, how did that shape you guys as people and, and bandmates and songwriters as you were developing? There's a lot of different parts to that. Like, for one thing, you know, Georgia is largely agrarian, although it has, you know, Atlanta is a big city and Athens is a thriving smaller city and college community so the the sense of place and what came into our songs particularly with amy's as she moved up off into the northern part of georgia and lived in the woods and by a river and really really you see it all through her songs um references to the water and the earth and the trees and her you know she goes back four generations of, of southerners so hmm. there is that tie to the land and um a you know, relationship with the beauty of nature. Atlanta is a very green city, very tons and tons of trees and flowers and 
I think it's the most beautiful city in the spring that I've ever seen. Yeah. And then, in addition to that, you know, you have a lot of colleges and universities, and whenever there's that, there, especially if there's music tied to them, then there's a lot of musical exploration. There's, like, cool communities. Um, people want to check each other's music out. It's just... Um, and so Athens was a hotbed, like, incredible music coming out of Athens, you sure. know. Athens Inside Out was put out with, the, you know, that featured the Barbecue Killers and Love Tractor and, of course, R.E.M., the biggest of them all, but there was the, the B-52s. And, I mean, it was just incredibly rich. And and Athens and Atlanta had a really good sort of sister relationship. There wasn't, as I recall, any sort of competition or everybody wanted everybody else to do well. Yeah. And Atlanta had the Georgia Satellites and, you know, um, a bunch of other Atlanta bands and and singers like Sean Mullins who came up and Jennifer Nettles and um, and Christian Bush and and many many others. So it was just rich and fertile hmm. yeah. and with lots of support. And you know, back in the day, radio supported a regionalism in a way that it absolutely I mean, it's non-existent now. Right. But you bands from the Bodines who came out of the Midwest. You had the Riot Girl uh, music that came out of the Northwest, and you had Southern bands. Um, you know. With the Almond Brothers and Leonard Skinner, and and so radio really reflected a regionalism in music, and that was a very rich time as well. And we came up in the in the hotbed of all that good stuff. I remember that as a kid. I mean, we well, Scott and I both grew up in Nashville, and even being you know Nashville obviously had its own thing going. Um, but I remember even bands like Driving and Crying were big for us. Yeah, when, you know when we were in Nashville, just just because they were you know four hours away, we kind of claimed them. But, I, you know, you'd listen on the radio, and you knew that Bob Seger was from Detroit, and you knew that Journey was was from the San Francisco area. I can't remember where Boston was from, but there, um, <laughs> there, was, there was this kind of thing where you, where you knew that, and it sort of mattered as a listener, you know, that, that there were these tribes. Yeah, I mean, just connected to a sense of place. It's something that we really, really lost now, and I'm not like, oh, boo-hoo, but I do miss that. There was just, it's almost like the food you taste that's from a certain region. It just ties you to that region. Yeah. And, and it was the same way with music. And, you know, radio was just so eclectic and supportive of that. And we got a lot of boost from radio, from AAA stations and independent stations and, you know, avenues that just don't exist anymore. So um, yeah. now everybody sort of just scrambles through social media yeah. to try to get a leg up. But, you know, back then... Um, if you tasted the the food of the South, you also tasted the music of the South, and you knew where where the place was. Yeah. It was cool. Well, the first single you guys released as a band was a seven inch called "Crazy Game," and that's a song that you wrote. Because if you're ever believing, I'm thinking I'm leaving to the moon. Cause it's a fact she may go wandering about, but she always comes shining back, and it's true. And then the B-side was a song of Amy's called Everybody's Waiting for Someone to Come Home. Both of those were ultimately included on your first full-length, Strange Fire, which you recorded there in Georgia. But I'm interested in the way the songs are laid out. You know, you and Amy typically write separately, which is interesting enough on its own. But it's also interesting to me that your first single was kind of a 50-50 split between a song of yours and one of Amy's. And then Strange Fire is similarly laid out. And then the subsequent records as well, with almost equal representation of your respective compositions. Was that something that you consciously made a priority, you know, even as you were starting out to sort of make sure each of you got equal time? 
Yeah, I mean, not to the song or not to the minute or anything like that. I think it was more of just a, a, a balance, like reflecting the balance. And Amy's sensibilities were very, very different from mine. Our personalities are different. She was very, very influenced by like post, post-punk and, and what we called alternative music back then. And I was much more influenced by Joni Mitchell or Jackson Brown like songwriters and I had a lot of R&B in me and stuff like that. So I think it was just a natural way that we represented everything that we were. And then I think for the song choices as the albums lined up, and even in our live shows now, every night we're making new set lists. And typically it's, you know, a song of mine, a song of Amy's, a song of mine, a song of Amy's. And it's not like we have to do that to be fair, but it ends up being a good balance of, you know, fast songs and slow songs and in-between songs and Amy's sensibilities and mine and her voice and mine. Yeah. And in that way, we were just able to really, like, you know, keep it interesting for ourselves and reflect the balance of our differences and our similarities. And so it just kind of naturally came out of that. I mean, I think, like, on the first Epic album, the one just called Indigo Girls, I think Amy had six songs on that and I had four. And I think on this latest album that we're just finishing up, like I have six and she has five and sometimes we did six and six and you know so it wasn't like it has to be absolutely equal but it is like well this is the best representation of our current work at the time yeah makes sense um well you mentioned that first uh epic records album the self-titled indigo girls record um and that gave you guys your first hit closer to fine i went to doctor The album won you a 1990 Grammy for Best Contemporary Folk Recording, earned you a nomination for Best New Artist, which wound up going to Millie Vanilli, which is a whole other topic. But, um, you know, I'm sure you've spoken about Closer to Fine a million times, but give us a little insight into that song and, and what it felt like to have that kind of success, you know, right out of the gate with your major label debut. Um, well, I wrote that song. I can remember where I was. I was in Vermont. My family used to go uh, take some summer vacation up there together, and I was on this, like, rustic cabin porch. And I was just thinking about my college experience and sort of like the insular academic community and how you can't get it all from that. Plus, I also learned that I used to think that everything you read was truth when I was a kid. (laughs) And then it wasn't until I got to college that I realized that you can read untruths. And so I was just sitting around. I mean, I've always been kind of like like an amateur philosopher. And I was just thinking about the way that we seek answers to life's questions and it was just a simple like exploration of the different ways that we seek answers and yeah and it really a folk song the music came super easy and um and i i just remember when that song came out and had no idea all the stuff that amy, happened to me and amy about getting signed to a major label it was like hey, we there was just no way that was ever going to happen i mean it was just major labels they they chased trends as we know and like Suzanne Vega had been signed and did well and Tracy Chapman and so there was a bit of a slew of women with acoustic guitars and we had this one eccentric A&R guy from Epic who came down poking around when R.E.M. was about to be re-signed 
everybody wanted them. Yeah. And we just happened to be in the area, and so, you know, to make, to make, to get signed to a major label, first of all, was like uh, just an unbelievable thing, and then we had to talk our manager, who's been with us for 32 years, into being our manager. Hmm. He's like, I don't know. And then <laughs> all that happened, and then the song did really well out of the box, which is total surprise. Hmm. And we went from, you know, uh, boxing our own self-made LPs on Independent together and pouring everything into the car and sitting on our own little regional tours to all of a sudden playing, like, really big venues and being on television and, and selling albums. And it was it was very... And winning a Grammy was very uh, head-spinning, sort yeah. of. Like, it, it, there was a bit of a disconnect. Huh. Um, but the great thing was that we were a bar band and we knew how to tour and we knew how to make our own albums and we had good management that was like family more than... We never had these big aspirations to do anything more than just play the next best gig. So, thankfully... Yeah we set up an organic thing just naturally hmm. uh, obviously it's organic and then we got signed and then we were able to navigate it well you know on those early albums they they set a tone lyrically that has always run through your work you know closer to fine you know mentioning names like Rasputin you know and then <laughs> lines like this one in Prince of Darkness I, I I don't know when I noticed life was life at my expense the words of my heart lined up like prisoners on a fence. The dreams came in like needy children tugging at my sleeve. I said, I have no way of feeding you, so leave. This is not your basic, uh, simple, like, moon and June type stuff, but it also isn't so heady that the listener can't figure out what you're talking about. I, I think it shows kind of an intellectual shorthand between you and your audience, and it really comes across to me as a great show of respect for the listener. How do you view that relationship as you're seeking to communicate with your lyrics? These are great questions. I, you know, <laughs> when I hear you, read, I kind of cringe when I hear you read the lyrics with the darkness <laughs> because it's a bit verbose, you know. Like, and and actually, early on, we could not get rid of the tag of earnestness and verbosity. You know, the critics that that I just remember that being, you know, just the the albatross. <laughs> and I think we've grown into it or people got used to it or people are seeking that out now more or whatever it is. But anyway, I hear a line like that and I was like, you know, I could have cut a few words out of that one. And <laughs> I think as a songwriter, Amy and I have tried to grow in our right. craft, I'll call it, our work. You know, we've tried to get to be better and better songwriters. Um, and so use more of an economy of words. Like we joke about closer to fine. The first line is I'm trying to tell you something about my life. Yeah. If I were to write a song now, I would not spend the first line describing how I'm <laughs> describing something. <laughs> right, so, right. you know, those are examples of like young writing and it's not to detract from the song. I mean, it was what it was when I was, you know, 19 years old. So I think Amy and I both, over the years, we still write songs for the same reason. They are reflections of our observations of the world through our own lenses. They are stories that have been told to us, friends that we've known, um, or they are like our interpersonal relationships, yeah. like the pains and joys that we've experienced, and which is, you know, when you, when you come down to it, like human experience, a lot of it boils down to the same thing, the same reason why we experience troubles, 
the same things that make us happy, the same basic needs that we have. Yeah. Hmm. And there's a lot of really, really wonderful ways that artists have painted and written them and acted them and all this stuff. But the human experience can be distilled, you know, to yeah. very few things. And so that's what songwriting is about. You just try not... The trick is to not write the same song over and over and over again. Right. Yeah. And so over the years, we just have, you know, we've got a bunch of people who are like, our music is the soundtrack to their lives, just like music is the soundtrack to my life of people that I like to listen to their music. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of all fallen into place I from that, it. but without any real intention except to get to be better and better writers yeah. as much as we can. That's great. It's interesting you you bring that point up because I I had come across uh, an interview with you from more recently, um, and you said I'm a better songwriter now in many ways than I think I was then, maybe not to our fans but to me, um, and that's an interesting observation because I think you know like if you're a a stand up comedian for instance like nobody wants to hear you do anything on stage that they've heard before. You know, it all, everybody always wants everything to be new. Yeah. And if you're a, a musician, if you're a singer, there are certain things that everybody is always going to want to hear forever. You know, I know. The, the, I know. The, the, the fans are going to want to hear you play closer to fine, you know, all the time. And, and, and as somebody who is continually creating, how do you kind of strike that balance between, okay, I, I definitely want to give, you know, people what they want and I appreciate and love those songs and they're part of my history. But at the same time, you know, I'm also doing stuff now that I want to make sure that, that people are exposed to and I get to share that. How do you kind of strike that balance? Uh, and I think we have to accept that there are going to be songs that are tied to people's experiences that bring them back to those experiences and, Something physiologically happens when you listen to a song on repeat or you hear it again and again during a time that was important. Or And so I think, like, I acknowledge the power of that. Whatever happens when we hear something repetitively and tie it to our experience is so powerful. It is not the same kind of power as listening to something the first time. Because the hmm. first time, you you know you're it's going through your filters you're you're taking it in but you, you don't have the familiarity and you're trying to see if you get what it means or how does the music make you feel and all that stuff whereas yeah. the old stuff is just like it, it immediately explodes mm-hmm. in its yeah. full reality and so i just have a respect for that's the way it is but also the reason why amy and i keep making new albums like we don't think of ourselves as uh, like a well, certainly not a legacy band, but y'all know what I mean. A nostalgia like, actor. Yeah. Yeah, we're not like a band yeah. that's over. We keep we keep writing and we keep making albums. And when we keep making albums, we play the new music in the shows. Yeah. And like right now, we're on tour and we uh, will we'll play like Shame on You or Closer to Fine or Galileo or <clears throat> Kid Fears. And everybody sings, and it's really great. It's that kind of experience. But we also say we're playing a couple of new songs from our new album that hasn't been, even been released yet. Yeah. So, and we're very, very we honor the audience. We say thank you for listening to new stuff. And it's almost like a caveat, like oh my god, we're going to play something new now. So <laughs> thank you so much. Right, it, right. it almost it feels like that. We get to a medley but, of right. the new songs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 And so um, it, it, it's a different kind of energy when people are taking in new stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But it's 
it's important. And if you only ever heard just old stuff, I don't know, it'd be boring to me right, and right. definitely boring to us. So sure. we just mix it up. And but most and a lot of times fans they want to hear obscure stuff. It's not sure, like right. it was. You know, it's just it's older, but it's obscure. And then there are just the people who love certain songs, and they just want to hear them. So luckily for us, we got a mix of of listeners, and we and we get to play new stuff as well as old stuff. Um, well, the follow up to that self titled record was Nomads, Indians, and Saints, which included some of your now classic songs like Watershed and Hammer and a Nail. That one hit number 12 on the Billboard Modern Rock chart, confirming your status as a great recording act. Um, but your roots are all about live performance, and, and the, the live records that you guys have released, um, Back on the Bus, Y'all, in 1991, 1200 Curfews in 95, Staring Down the Brilliant Dream in 2010, these are, these are great documents of, of what you guys do and the relationship that you have with your audience. And, and Paul and I have been you know fortunate enough to, to have the opportunity to see you guys perform live several times, and it's always... Um, a very connected experience between fan and, and performer. Um, it, you guys clearly give a lot to your audience, but you seem to, you know, receive a lot as well. And you were kind of touching on that concept of, you know, playing a, a mix of old songs and new songs and, and deep cuts. But to, to kind of put a finer point on that, how has, has that interplay kind of specifically shaped you um, as a songwriter, what what impact has that kind of immediate response um, from an audience had on you as you kind of work on on your craft? It's a good question. I really try not to think about how something's going to be received while I'm writing. It, like for instance, recently I'm writing a new. I wrote a new song for the new album, and there's a line in it that goes. Uh, all the way, all the way, all the way to Nashville. So, and then the next line of the next verse is, there's a reason, there's a reason that they call it. And so I thought to myself, I'm repeating these words. Why am I doing that? But I could not not do it. So, and then I thought, God, I thought maybe, are people going to think this is weird? Like, why would I use other words instead of repeating that? But I trusted that this is the way that that song was coming out. And so... It's part of an answer to your question is that I I sometimes do think, hmm, well, are they going to get this or not? But I don't change it based on what I think someone might appreciate or not yeah. appreciate it because I have to do it the way it's coming from my truth. The other thing is that, like, I do know that I, I could write ballads until the cows come home. I could write a whole album of ballads, and I could write... I, they just come naturally, digging into sorrow and pain and playing a pretty guitar part is just comes more naturally to me than anything yeah. else so what i try to do is stretch myself and write upbeat stuff and I, when i think about people in the audience i think about that too just because some people may want that but i don't want it and so i don't want to create only that and like amy i love having her as a partner because i love her rock music and her energy and i just cannot write with the same energy that Amy writes with. I have my own energy. It's different from hers, but I always 
really love the energy of her songs. And so she's been a great influence on me to sort of stretch myself and out of my ballad or my natural prettiness, you know, in terms of guitar parts right. and melody. <clears throat> so I think about that in the balance. But mostly I just, you know, it is the word balance key because I want to have some fast songs and I, w I want them to, you know, work yeah. as yeah. songs and then I want there to be some slow songs and some dark songs and some sort of middle-of-the-road pop songs, so. We've been kind of going chronologically album to album and, and what's coming next then is the Rites of Passage album, um, which in addition to having a really cool cover art concept, um, the <laughs> album uh, features some, some more fantastic Emily songs like Galileo. not only a fan favorite, but it was your first song to reach the top 10 on the Billboard Modern Rock chart. Did it surprise you to find that kind of success with a folk rock song about reincarnation? <laughs> <laughs> it's so, it's kind of an out-of-body experience when it's your own music. I guess some people who have had a lot of hits, they go, they know, oh, this is a hit, this is a yeah. hit. I mean, I think what happened with us was just we were, we had some momentum and we had uh, epic records fully behind us and when it came time to pick a single to release they just put the full force of their machinery behind us we had a really good relationship with them for a long time and so we figured whatever song it is that they all choose they're going to get behind it um, but I tell you it, it is a thrill when a song does well but I never thought I, I, I never picked it apart and go imagine that a song about reincarnation on the radio <laughs> um because that's just the way I write. Yeah. So, but I knew that you know it's got a catchy chorus and people like to sing to it and stuff like that. So, and a lot of times radio is just a, as much about how the song feels as what it's actually saying. Yeah. There's yeah. not a lot of like, at least not anymore. There's not a lot of real like lyrical content in songs on the radio unless some country song. Right. Well, and to your point, it does seem to me like sometimes the best way for a songwriter to get in their own way is to start playing A&R in their heads and go, you know, what do I think a single should sound like and, and should this be the single? And, and to kind of stay out of that process sounds like it's... It, I'm kind of noticing this thread in your answers that your muse is kind of the highest authority when it comes to sitting down and writing. Um, that audience, A&R, radio guys, whatever, you kind of you put that aside and you say, I'm just going to follow the path of what my heart is telling me. Yeah, I mean, choosing the singles was always ultimately up to the record companies. And now we laugh. Choosing a single, what the hell does that even mean anymore? We're not going to get played on radio and it's all about streaming and who the hell knows how to get streamed, you know? Um, so that's never been part of our... I mean, we're, we work very hard, at, but we work hard at the music. We work hard at writing, like one of the differences between now and when I first started and when we started was the, like, I could write five songs a day easily in college and the muse was always there. Now both Amy and I have a kid, mm. she's got a little girl, I've got a little girl, animals to manage and relationships and and everything and so we use the writing time like, a, like we're going to the office. Yeah. Like for me, I say to my wife, okay, on Tuesday between two and four, I need to go down to my room and work on songs and it's like it's all about scheduling it's not about 
oh, I feel like writing. I'm going to run down, right. you right. know, and play my guitar. So that's that's a big difference between the early days and now. But we're always in service to the song, always. Like, Amy and I, we're very honest with each other. Thankfully, we like everything that the other one writes. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, But we work really hard on our arrangements, and we're very just conscientious about the whole process, but not about uh, success. Yeah. Well, 1995 saw the release of Swamp Ophelia, uh, featuring a song called Power of Two, which contains one of my favorite lyrics ever. Now the steel bars between me and a promise suddenly bend with ease. The closer I'm bound in love to you, the closer I am to free. that incredibly poetic but it's direct and it's honest and it sounds extremely personal and confessional um you know you mentioned before that sometimes you're writing from personal experience and then sometimes you're sort of maybe dreaming up some of these scenarios um have you ever found yourself in in sort of personal conflict with that idea um man this is a little too close to me to write about or maybe even someone in your life being like hey don't put this conversation in a song (laughs) yeah it's funny i will not put something in a song that someone in my life will recognize and be hurt by. I just don't ever right. do that. You know, it just I've always felt that it was important to you may I, I may hide things in a song or give put it in the mouth of a, somebody else or um, but I've never had someone I know come up and say, you know, I recognize myself in that song and that really sucked that you did that. I'm just not that yeah. kind of uh, person that like Taylor Swift always got <laughs> you know took a lot of shit for writing about I love her songs I love her right I love yeah, her but she's got everything but a yearbook but, photo next to every one of those songs <laughs> yeah, tell me who it is yeah so but I, I I sort of made a promise to myself never to do that like but there are songs that are completely about personal experiences or uh, experiences that someone else shared with me that I just sort of I hide them in a different story so um because you can't not write about interpersonal things there there just be nothing for me to write about you know that's that's kind of my jam but yeah so i'm just uh, (laughs) to be hurtful and you know that that line from power two i have a good friend who's a um a badass radical minister and she preached a sermon i grew up going to church at emory university it was very uh ecumenical the space was not like a traditional church and um just a lot of like really really inspiring spiritual moments of worship for there with me for me there and then um my friend she preached the sermon and the whole concept about freedom through commitment yeah was kind of like an epiphany for me Mm. and and then 
I just I never forgot that that concept was like yeah that's a paradox but that's the truth wow. hmm. and so that that snuck into that little pop song power too huh. wow um, well a few years back you and Amy uh, did a record called Poseidon and the Bitter Bug that had uh, like one disc was the full band stuff and the, and the second disc was the same songs essentially in their acoustic versions and it kind of brought into stark contrast that the sound of the records that you guys um, make together has has shifted over time I mean the the early stuff was much more of an acoustic focus and then we're moving you know more to an embrace of electric guitar and, and ukuleles and even maybe rhythms that reflect more of kind of a world music approach and I think kind of a, a microcosm of that shift uh, can be found in the first three tracks of the Shaming of the Sun album from 1997. Um, there's Amy's songs, uh, Shame on You, which features this kind of driving electric guitar, and Shed Your Skin, which kind of opens with almost like a Cypress Hill type yeah. of beat. And then right there, you know, between them is your song, Get Out the Map, which uses banjo really effectively. Get out the map, get out the map, lay your finger anywhere the figure into those we pass on our way out of town. We'll drink the water, there seems to be something ailing everyone. I'm gonna clear my head, I'm gonna drink that sun. I'm gonna love you good and strong, while our love is good and young. Talk about how you guys approach the process, or you know, or, or in that era, how you kind of approached branching out into different sonic textures while also you know bringing your fans along with you as you're kind of evolving creatively beyond just the the simple you know acoustic approach of maybe some of the earlier stuff very early on like when we first got signed to epic i remember one we both were pretty fierce about protecting what we did so we didn't want a lot of outside control we didn't want you know, we had a great A&R guy, but we didn't want a lot of outside people, <laughs> meaning our record company, <laughs> or other influencers coming in and trying to take control over the musical direction. Right. So, you know, and Scott Litt, he, he had produced R.E.M., and he was on board with us. And Hot House Flowers came in, a very organic Irish band. So there was some, like, you know, te- musical textures that were different from what we just brought. But I, at least for me, I can remember wanting to very hold quite tightly to to what it was that we were, which was like this acoustic bar band. And then as time went on, you know, all the influences of the music that we love, just your inclination is to just want to try different things out. I, I neither Amy nor I ever wanted to just keep doing the same things. And and also we had big we had big enough budgets that we could. We could bring all sorts of different players and singers in, and we could take two months making an album and throw all kind, you know, a hurt, hurty-gurty on a song, and we could, you know, get out the map was much had a much more like uh, Americana approach, and then I was like, I don't want, I want this to have more of an R&B approach. I remember mm-hmm. Jerry Murata was the drummer, and he's like, okay, how about this? And you know, he just played that, and then Dallas Austin, who had, you know, was producing uh, TLC. He was in the next door studio. I forget if we were in Nashville or whatever. And I, and I was like, "Hey, can y'all you, you want to come over and sing on this song?" And so his voice and a bunch of other folks he was working with, they came and sang on the chorus, "Get Out the Map." <laughs> so it was kind of like the beautiful kitchen sink of availability. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we felt by that time we were already established in a really healthy career, 
and it was like, man, let's have fun, let's try this and let's try yeah. that. And yeah. then there are other albums we went back to. Let's just have more of a straightforward approach. And this new album is that we made in the UK. The guy who produced it, John Reynolds, produced Come On Now Social, mm -hmm, right. which is one of my favorite albums of ours, and that's got all kinds of production on it. But this one's pretty much like straightforward, the players on it. Um, and so it's just um, like just how you feel at the time and what you want to put on it. Yeah. You know, um, you, you mentioned the Come On Now Social record, and uh, we're, we're having to move quicker than I want to through your career because you've just done so freaking much. Um, <laughs> we're uh, moving on at this point to the Become You album. Uh, there's a question I want to ask you um, in particular because there's something on that album that's pretty rare, and it's an Emily Salier's co-write. Um, the ballad Hope Alone was written with Annie Roboff, who's best known for writing country hits like This Kiss for Faith Hill. prompts you to take on, you know, a rare co-write, and what did Annie bring to the table that made it a different song than something you would have written on your own? It's a great question, and she, Annie and I also co-wrote a song called Gone of Mine that came on, uh, maybe it was Beauty Queen Sister later on. So Annie, we became friends, and I just love Annie. She's an amazing, like, brilliant woman, and she plays piano, so she has that whole range of uh, shifting to chords yeah. and stuff that... I don't do naturally on guitar. So we sat down and we just started playing this melody. She goes, you know, you can, you don't have to fill every uh, note with a syllable. You can stretch a word out. <laughs> and so it was kind of like, oh, really? I can't? <laughs> and so like in Hope Alone, you looking for your distance, you know, holding that word out, you, rather than saying, you and you alone, you know, we're adding yeah. more words, like my tendency toward being verbose. That's something that, that Annie brought uh, to that song. And then, in, you know, in Gone later on, she brought she wrote an incredible bridge. And she is a master at shifting from the body of a song to a bridge, like mm. seamlessly, to these chords that you're like, what? Wow. And this kiss is like all about that really yes you don't even know what key you're in by the end of it but it's, <laughs> right. it's seamless and so annie's musicality and just her friendship you know i just when i got to be friends with her i just adored her and it for me it was an honor to to co-write a song with her well around the same time that you wrote the book with your dad um you and amy parted ways with epic records and released the album despite our differences with hollywood records um, there's some cool guest vocals on that record, uh, including Pink on Amy's song Rock and Roll Heaven's Gate, and then Brandy Carlisle on one of your quintessential tunes, Last Tears. These are the last tears I'm gonna cry for you. My crying is through. I'm moving on. I don't regret and won't forget a single thing that we went through. But these are the last. love to hear about that song oh last tears man it's about a relationship you know it, you know it had a lot to do with 
with a person that I ended up marrying. But at the time, I was just so wrecked, and I was like, ah, I've got to stop. I cannot cry anymore over anybody or anything, you know. And it was great, and it would have been awesome, but I'm moving on. And so, and while every word is not a true-to-life reflection, most of that song is just a super personal song, and... It was written. So I wanted it to. I wanted it to be sort of like a country song. Yeah. But when it was finished, I've, I've always had this dream of having one of my songs by a country artist because I love country singers' voices. You know, typically there are some differences, but a lot of country artists they don't fully write their own songs. You know, yeah. they have these co-writes and they're brought in and they end up being these awesome songs, very well crafted. But their voices are so good and you know honestly i'm not trying to uh belittle myself but i don't love my voice i've never really you know it's just my voice it's what i have but so last years i thought man this would be great if you know a country artist uh, could sing this it never happened i still have hopes that yeah. <laughs> uh, great singers will record some of my more you know radio or country album type leaning songs but so that's the story of that song and then brandy we had become friends with brandy incredible voice she really blended well with me and amy too which is interesting because she was such a powerful unique voice but she's a great great harmony singer and so we just asked her to come in and then pink she'd invited us to do dear mr president the song she wrote with billy mann and we had recorded that in atlanta together and then we struck up a friendship and she was in la at the time we were making that album and we just said, come on over and sing on this song. She's she's a brilliant musician. She has a great ear, incredible voice. She's like a one-take person. Wow. She had to stand about three feet off the microphone. Her voice is so powerful. <laughs> right. You know, and she just made stuff up, and she just and then we just all hung out and talked about politics and life and stuff. <laughs> and it was a, it was a really nice little chapter of having her on our album because we admire her so much and yeah. like her so much, and then getting to hang out a bit and that's a great thing when you put someone on your album it time stamps your relationship that's you cool. know for all time and that's a gift well you know we've we've talked a bit about your time with epic records and we've talked uh, briefly about your time with hollywood records um and that's probably appropriate because that was kind of a brief season um and for the most recent albums you've created your own label indigo girls records um there's a lot to say about how that kind of change affects you from a structural and financial standpoint i'm sure especially in this age of streaming when master ownership is is an important thing to have but is it more fun being being the label rather than having to kind of deal with the label you know we i i'm grateful to epic for the run we have with them we made good friendships and we loved our a and our guy roger klein and you know, they just were good to us. And it was a different time in the record industry where they actually nurtured the life of bands. Although, you know, right out of the box, I don't know if they knew what to do with us. <laughs> they just like, oh, okay, these ladies have a good uh, bar following and we're, we're signing women with guitars in the industry. And, you know, maybe we, I think we just got lucky a lot. Hmm. But anyway, we love being independent. I mean, we signed with Hollywood because we thought, well, maybe we'll get... Uh, to have our music in movies or television or we were just looking for another outlet, you know, just trying to grow and we thought that'll be good. But they didn't really take to us and 
you know, our time with major labels was done, and we had planned on making an album anyway when they dropped us, and we just went to the studio and did it independently. So um, we love being independent. I mean, the only thing, it, it, it's not that stressful, but it is like you have to take out a loan to make an album, and you pay for it yourself. And so one good thing is that you're really careful about money. There's nothing, you don't take anything for granted. Um, it's all in your control. You own your masters. It's really just the only way we could be now. I cannot imagine being signed to a label. You know, the great thing about a label that works well with you is that with, um, or a distribution company that does a good job is that they just have the, um, capacity to get the music out there in a way that you may not have on your own. Yeah. But at this point, we have all our established relationships our live performance we have agent relationships and promoter relationships we have the same management you know we know the radio stations we know just we've been around long enough to have all the relationships set up yeah. hmm. so the freedom yeah. is awesome well and as successful as indigo girls have been um you've explored other musical outlets from film scoring to releasing your own solo album murmuration nation in 2014 and that record, you know, kind of takes you in some new directions, not only in terms of, you know, the instrumentation, but even maybe some differences in terms of melodies. Uh, I, th- I think one example um, being the lilting Serpent Love. Find yourself consciously experimenting with melodies in your solo work that you can, you know, basically <laughs> you can write them without having to think about what role harmony will play. Um, you know, if you know it's not something that's intended for an Indigo Girls record, does do you approach the writing process differently at all for for a solo project, or is to you is it all just kind of part of the same stew? The writing, the approach for that album was very different. And in, for better or for worse, because, well, first of all, Lyris Hung, who plays violin with me and Amy, she tours with us. She's, she's become the other Indigo girl. I mm. mean, if she's not there, everybody's like, where's Lyris? And she's like a <laughs> one-woman band, and she never plays the same thing twice when she's improvising. And I just wow. can't say enough about her and her musicality. And she produced that album, and, you know, some of the songs were written like I wrote them on guitar, and some of them, like I would write them on a guitar, I knew there was going to be a lot more production. I knew there was going to be beats, and I knew there was going to be like a rhythmic center and just more of like a uh, the kitchen sink. But everything was going to have its place because that's what Lyris likes to do. She doesn't like to throw the paint of, um, can of paint against the wall and see where it sticks. Like She's mm. very, very deliberate about where things sit in the musical spectrum and so on. So... You know, I'd write a song um, on electric guitar, and then we'd sort of start building the song. Like, she would send me a beat, and I would write something on it, and then I would add a section. And then in the end, on some of the songs, she took most of my guitar out, so I just Hmm. ended up playing parts. So when I toured the album solo, I wasn't just, like, strumming through songs. I had parts I had to play. It was challenging. And in some ways... Uh, it wasn't as, um, I think it's because I wasn't used to it, it wasn't as gratifying, you know, as mm. like playing a song all the way through. But I think musically it was more important 
to play parts rather than just strum all the way through. And some songs yeah. I strummed all the way through. But Serpent Love, she wrote the music. Well, she and I both wrote the music, but she started that music. And she it was a violin piece, and she sent it to me, and she's like, write some lyrics to this and write a melody. And I was like, okay. And the first thing I wrote about was the the race riots of the 60s. Wow. I sent it to her, and she's like, mm, <laughs> can you try something else? <laughs> and so... I went back and I turned it into sort of like the swirling mel- melody, serpent love, like interpersonal song that it that it became. So in order to, I mean, to answer your question, there were a lot of songs that were built rather than me just sitting and writing them through a guitar and that was it. And then they got produced. And so I felt less confident about them. Like I felt like I can't sit and play Hello Vietnam on the guitar hmm. in a concert. Yeah. And Lyris was always like, yes, you can. It's hmm. just different. And looking back, she's right. Yeah. But at the time, I did not have the confidence and the experience as a solo artist to, to you know, to go all the way in like that. Yeah. So it was a huge learning experience. And the other thing I wanted was a gazillion beats. I love hip-hop. I love rap music. I love R&B. And I wanted... Beats, 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 and she's like, you know what? We're gonna, you can have some beats, but most of these beats are gonna be played by real drummers. And it's gonna be better in the end. Yeah. And I was like, no, I want beats, I want beats. <laughs> <laughs> and we, I mean, we ended up using like Spud Sirite on on Spud Sirite on um, drums and just incredible players, and you know Tim Lefebvre on bass and. Just incredible players, and you know, I'm very proud of that album musically. But it was a struggle for me uh, with the lack of confidence that I normally mm. have when working with Amy. I mean, that's that's got to be different, you know, completely. You guys have been peas in a pod together for so many years, and then to step out and do it, it has to feel different. You know, you were, you were mentioning all the all the players on the record, and I've always enjoyed looking through the credits on on all the music you guys have put out. I mean, Scott and I both grew up in the era when people read credits you know religiously <laughs> and you know yeah. from early records to seeing oh look hot house flowers and and then there's you know the guys from rem showing up here and it, when i look through the credits of your solo album i see a familiar name tom morello as engineer and i do a yeah. little digging to see if that's the tom morello i thought oh. it was <laughs> and then i come across this 1997 mtv news article and this is what it says the Indigo Girls and Rage Against the Machine guitarist Tom Morello are forming a rather unlikely musical partnership. Amy Ray and Emily Saliers, who are both huge fans of Rage, called Morello and asked him to remix their song Shed My Skin. Now, I personally love the idea of you guys driving to play an acoustic folk set somewhere under the stars and listening to Bulls on Parade on your way <laughs> to do that. Um, <laughs> and then I would love to just hear about your relationship with Tom. Well, we were huge Rage Against the Machine fans. I mean, they were on Epic Records, too. But we, we were just, like, the, the politics of Zach's lyrics and, like, the prowess of that band, their energy, just everything about them. We loved them, and we listened to them all the time and went to shows and stuff like that. And so when we were talking about doing some remixes, I think it's probably Amy picked Tom because it's her song. Um because I had a different song of mine remixed by a sort of a DJ-type remixer mm. person. It was totally different. But so Tom um, 
we didn't have a lot of interaction with him over the years, or maybe Amy had more that I'm not aware of, but, you know, it was, it was such an honor for him to agree to uh, redo that song, and I love the version that, that it turned out. But it was, that's another thrill about this whole journey, is like being able to reach out and ask people that you admire. It's like a dream. Yeah. Like, you can imagine as a kid loving a, the first time I met Ann Wilson from Heart, I thought I was going to die, <laughs> you know? Like, we did the songwriters in the round for some, like, music midtown or something in Atlantic a zillion years ago, and she was there, and she sang Crazy on You, an acoustic version. And, yeah, she's incredible. I mean, so, a lot of this is, like, the great candy store of life for me yeah. and Amy <laughs> as kids, and Tom Morello's part of that. Yeah, that's cool. Well, it's, it's, I mean, I think people, it's it's ridiculous to assume, but I think people do assume that like, oh, if you if you create a certain type of music, then you must just be fans of that type of music all the time. But it's it's not true. It, you know, people that that go to play acoustic guitar at night are possibly listening to super heavy stuff all day, and then after the rage show, Tom's probably listening to the woods. Yeah, somewhere. I don't you know, know what he I don't know what he's listening to, but you know, I just saw Greta Van Fleet in Atlanta. I mean. It was such a great band. They, you know, they're super young, but um, just brought everybody was like smoking weed, and it was like very, you know, the lead singer he's wearing feathers or whatever, and it was just very like felt very seventies. But and then the night before, so I've been to see Lizzo at the Tabernacle because I'm crazy about her, you know, and I listen to Biggie all the time, especially when I'm driving, hmm. and. And I just like, and Amy's the same way. We love all kinds of music. The only kind of music I don't like is smooth jazz, you know? <laughs> right, right. And, or elevator music. But yeah. we love all kinds of music. And in some ways, I think, like, some of the influence of that has showed up in albums like Come On Now Social or sure. Shaming of the Sun. Um, but also, we don't take it so far as we're, like, really respectful not to co-opt things. So. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. If I could blink my eyes and be a hip hop artist and write a hip hop album and produce it, I would, but hmm. I can't. So <laughs> you know, we we bring in the influences and we're grateful yeah. for them and we listen to all different kinds of music. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned uh, earlier. You said you know because of just kind of the place you are in life now and and the busyness of of life that you know your writing today is more like hey I need to tell my wife that you know on Tuesday of next week I need X amount of hours to, to go down it and work on it. Um, talk about how the the writing process for you has. Um, evolved over the years when you were starting out was it more kind of a uh right when i feel inspired or has there always been an element of of discipline to uh to the writing process it was right when i feel inspired and i felt inspired all the time <laughs> i mean music just absorbed me i i literally i started college at tulane university in new orleans and i swear i had this book and i wrote all the lyrics in, and there's like a hundred songs in there and it was just I just wrote so much all the time, and that's all I wanted to do, and actually kept me from being, I was kind of lonely inside, you know, I missed my parents, I missed Atlanta, I've never have been great at transitions, I'm getting better, but finally, thank God, but so it was a way just a respite from loneliness, and it became my identity, and I wrote all the time. And then, you know, like I say, you don't want to re repeat yourself. If you just write all the time, you're, 
you're bound to repeat yourself and then yeah. life takes over you know and with a child forget about it yes. First you go through <laughs> two years of no sleep and um and all the priorities in your life completely shift and then you have a partnership where your your spouse your spouse's work is just as important as yours and you have to work out the schedules and so just logistically things shift and now you know I've I've gotten I use Logic as a soft recording software and I'll go down there in my room and I, my intent is to write songs and then I'll get like God why can't I get input one to work and uh, <laughs> oh man should I use a bus on this Wait a minute I yeah. got to look on YouTube how to play a bus and then I'll get on YouTube and learn how to play the electric guitar solo from an Eagle song you know and yeah, it's yeah, just exactly. like the rabbit hole right so, that's amazing um, but it is it's it is much more a balance of things in life and then touring you know we don't tour as much as we used to because we have families yeah and um and so things have just shifted but in the end when it when it comes time to really sit and and write we make the time to do it well even with all those things going on in your life you and amy are still going strong and you just released a live album recently with the colorado symphony orchestra and Hearing songs like The Wood Song or Virginia Woolf or Galileo in, in that grand setting, I mean, it's really something beautiful. In, in a way, sometimes I think everyone who sings with a guitar kind of secretly longs for the, the quote-unquote legitimacy that comes with an orchestral treatment of their music. <laughs> How was that experience for you? It was wonderful. It was another one of those things where just at the time where... I mean, we've never really gotten in a rut, but there's always we always do reach times where we're looking for the, maybe the next fun or interesting or expansive thing that we can do just to keep growing and experiencing. And, you know, it sort of fell into our lap. We got invited to, there's this agency called Cami, and they put artists together with orchestras, and we got invited to be part of that. And so we picked arrangers, and they we picked the songs, and um, the arrangers arranged the songs, and then they... They send the music out to the orchestras, and so we've ended up playing in major cities all over North America for the past, it's at least five years now. And so a natural extension of that. And we we originally had planned it, or we talked about doing it with an orchestra from a city, and then quite honestly, the union fees, logistics, it it just economically was not feasible. But fortunately... Playing, we played a show with University of Colorado Boulder uh, Symphony, and we loved that orchestra so much. They had that youthful passion for music. Nobody was jaded. We loved the conductor. We remembered them, you know, as being one of the outstanding experiences. And so when we started talking about making this album, which we had been talking about for a couple of years, we were like, we'd love to do it with them. And then management got involved in talks with, uh, Gary and and with the university and you know just ironed out all the logistics and then we went in there and we had a rehearsal I had strep throat I'll never forget wow. this I had strep throat so we, we did a like the rehearsal and we recorded that and then we did the show and recorded that and then we you know put the album together from that but that whole experience it's it, it's such an honor yeah. to first of all to have been invited into that whole world then to work with the arranger that we work with. Uh, Sean O'Loughlin is who we work with all the time now, and um, Stephen Mills did some of the early work, which was great. But anyway, getting to make a symphony album, and I think it brought those songs to life in yeah, new ways. For sure. And there is sort of like a, 
you know, you're like the illegitimate child, the one with the acoustic guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, God, I'm a little sick of acoustic guitar, you know. I probably listen to singer-songwriters and acoustic guitar less than I listen to any other kind of Interesting. Music, Interesting. That's just white noise now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, you know, you guys have been at it for, for over 30 years, and, you know, there are... Uh, untold number of great bands that have have split up, you know, over the years because of personalities or whatever. And not only have you guys, you know, stayed together all this time, but there's only two people in the band, which I think would probably be even more intense sometimes. And I think it's a real testament to the way, you know, that you guys work together and play off each other and and sharpen each other and bring your strengths to the table. Um, but having spent, you know, more than three decades um, on stage with, with Amy and the fact that you are both great songwriters, just out of curiosity, is there one Amy song that, that you just think, man, I wish I'd written that one. I just love that. <laughs> There's more than one. Oh, my gosh. There's so many. I mean, I, I really, really, really love her song, Shame on You. I love the way it flows. Funny, I think we were on the same boat back in 1694. And I said, la 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 Every time we sing that line, because immigration is, I mean, it, it the, uh, just makes me sick what's happening mm-hmm. in this country with regards to that. And so it's so, uh, I just feel that line, I feel that song, I love it musically. But, you know, I really, I love all of Amy's songs, and I, in some ways I have more fun singing her songs in the shows than I do mm-hmm. mine, because it's, it's like singing a cover song, if that makes any sense. Sure, yeah. You, you it's just a different experience, you know. My songs are just me. I can't really get outside of them and observe them, or I'm in them so much I can't, you know, whatever. I mean, I feel what I write, and I, when I sing it, I feel what I'm singing. But it's just like getting to sing Amy's songs. It's a very liberating experience. Mm-hmm. So I love Chicken Man. I love Shame on You. Kid Fears is so anthemic. I love her song, Share the Mood. Um, Devotion is just so, like, tied to the land kind of song i mean don't get me started honestly (laughs) that's amazing hour two begins now (laughs) right well um this has been uh great we we're both fans and and it's been uh fantastic to to spend a little time talking with you um is the 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 new album are we at the point of having a a title and release date yet or is it still everything's in process it's not titled it's funny it doesn't really get titled until like the 11th hour we could have we could be talking about a title for a Hmm. year and then it'll change in the last minute but the release date is probably going to be early 2020 because releasing in the fall we could conceivably do it but it's a very crowded time we already have tours booked and so we'll just start with it fresh we'll get the whole packaging together the whole momentum behind the release and book show dates probably with a band um, to play the new music, and so look, at the beginning of 2020 is what we're looking at right now, and we're both very excited about the album. Cool. Well, well, we so will, are we. We will keep an eye out, and I know our listeners will be excited about it too. So, uh, Emily, thank you so much for for sharing some time with us today. Thanks, y'all. It was, it was really a pleasure. Thanks for listening. 
We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment now to subscribe to Songcraft in your podcast app of choice and sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com. As a reminder, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And don't forget to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow to find out how you can help support us. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. Galileo's head was on the block.